Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi. We're just 20, 25 days, that's all we are away from the start of the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan. We're with you every Monday here on Full Contact for the entire build-up and, of course, throughout the tournament. England laid down a bit of a marker ahead of next month's tournament by thrashing Ireland at Twickenham and we'll be debating where they now rank among the favourites to win the competition. As for Ireland... Well, they looked a bit of a shadow. Well, not just a bit. They did look a shadow of the side that went undefeated in 2018. And we'll speak to journalist and former player Liam Toland about what the expectations are now for Joe Schmidt's side. We'll be discussing the landmark moment in the women's game after World Rugby became the first major sporting federation to adopt a gender-neutral naming for the tournaments for the next World Cup in 2021. We'll be speaking not only to sponsorship expert Tim Crow about that, but also the England player Sarah Hunter. But right now I'm delighted to announce that uh, alongside me today is the former England hooker and World Cup finalist George Shooter. Hello, George. Good afternoon, Maura. England, Ireland. Don't think anyone expected a 57-15 scoreline. Uh, uh, in all these things, it was a, a case of England being... Uh, very, well, very good, actually, and Ireland not being good at all. What sort of balance between those two do you think it was? Uh, I think fairly extreme on both sides for us. I, I think yeah. Ireland did look very rusty. They, they certainly didn't look... I mean, they weren't that weren't that uh, impressive against Italy the previous week either, if we're honest. Um, but in all fairness, England England were very sharp. They, were, they played at a pace that uh, Ireland just couldn't get anywhere near. Uh, they were accurate. They were, um, you know, the defensive line speed was was outstanding throughout the game. Set piece was strong. They they upset the Irish set piece. Um, you know, the scrum was probably slightly uh, edged towards Ireland, but I think every other facet of the game, kicking, passing, handling, uh, England were almost on another level. I think, um, mm. which is very encouraging for from an English point of view. Uh, probably a little bit a uh, little bit worrying from an Irish point of view. Mm. Uh, ben Ryan told us last week that he didn't believe England had uh, a great chance of winning the World Cup with George Ford at 10 and indeed you know I've been an advocate of Farrell mm. at 10 but you but I Ford's performances uh, in the warm-up games especially with England on the front foot have been very very good indeed yeah um what do you think of of that particular axis and whether or not you, you which fly half which centers and so on because it's it's an area with a lot of options yeah now. I have to confess, I've been a Farrell fan for a number of years now, and I don't think he's a better rugby player than George Ford, particularly going forward. Uh, Ford is a far more instinctive, natural player. Farrell is far more sort of uh, mechanical, and um, his his his, uh, his game is not he's not a natural footballer as such in, in the way Ford is. But England England have always played better with Farrell at ten. Um, 
However, over the last year at uh, Leicester, George Ford has been absolutely outstanding behind a, a pretty woeful pack and in a pretty woeful team. Uh, and now, as you said, with these these two warm-up games so far, he's been absolutely fantastic. So three warm-up games, he's been absolutely fantastic. And he's, he's made it almost... Um, uh, he's always forced Eddie Jones' hand. He's got to pick him because he's playing that well, and, and there's nothing else you can do as a player. Now, I, I think I'm not convinced Eddie Jones will will go uh, with the 10-12 Farrell, uh, sorry Ford Farrell 10-12 axis uh, in the in the early stage of the World Cup. I think he'll still want to stick with Farrell at 10 and perhaps sort of a Slade to Lange combination in midfield. But if, if George Ford, he, he cannot do anymore. He has not. He cannot have done any more to make himself mm. a first choice England 10. And um, I tell you what, John, he's given. I mean, we always knew it was an option, but you can see that it's not just um, an option where you think, oh, God, we've run out of ideas, let's yeah. try this one. It's one that you could actually use, you know, in a much more positive way. Definitely. And and, and that's, that's a massive credit to George Ford. I think he's probably it is, yeah. uh, had some criticism from Eddie Jones in, in, in private as to areas of his game that needs to work on. I would say probably defensively, he's, he's while he's not a coward by any stretch of the imagination, he's, he's a, a relatively passive tackler because of his uh, perceived lack of size, whereas Owen Farrell is in more of a Johnny Wilkinson uh, back row type tackling yeah. 10. But George Ford has worked on his game clearly and, and while whilst the, the defensive side of his game is, is improved he's not lost anything in attack and uh, as you said on the front foot and soon England will get on the front foot more often than not on the front foot he's he's been irresistible of late well this always happens an, an identified weakness um, comes along we've no sevens we've no tens etc and then loads, loads just appear from nowhere <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. and they've tried Curry and Underhill and they seem to do, dovetail quite nicely at seven and six, notwithstanding the fact that actually, frankly, the challenge from what is a very good Irish back row just simply didn't materialise. Mm. Um, do you think this is part of Jones thinking as a uh, a positive um, combination or just something he's trying in case he gets forced into that situation during a game? I think I think potentially a little bit of both. More, we, we were speaking off air earlier about the pacing and the playing at, um, and having two out and out sevens in the back row does give you that extra bit of pace around around the field from from your from your forwards. Uh, add that to a couple of a couple of props like uh, Sinclair and. Um, Genge or maybe a mile, a mile or not so much, uh, and the two second rows that, or two of the second rows that they've got, and you've got a really, really mobile, fast um, pack of forwards, and now, a good ball handling, absolutely, you know, yeah, from absolutely. five as well. The, the 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 only reservation I would have is that Mark Wilson has been England's best player probably um, since he's started playing for England, certainly through <laughs> the Six Nations and the autumn last year. He's been outstanding, uh, and I think the balance of the back row just looks better with a, with a sort of a proper out and out six in it. Um, yeah, and, um, maybe that's me being a little bit old school but even the Australian Pocock Hooper uh, axis seems to have run its course um I think I think you just got to have you got to have almost uh, two or three different options there. So if you have uh, uh, start with a Wilson, for example, at six, and the game's actually a little bit too quick, then you can chuck a, a Curry or an Underhill mm -hmm. on and uh, redress that balance. Or maybe you start fast and look to look to close out the game a bit tighter. I don't know, but I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a um, absolute uh, wealth of riches in the back row for Eddie Jones yeah. at the moment. With assuming Billy Billy Vinopolo stays fit, he'll he'll play that role at eight. Obviously, he's he's head and shoulders above the other eights. I think, um, but I'm. I mean, what a luxury having those those two guys, Curry and Underhill, fit and firing, and and, and Mark Wilson uh, there as well. It's uh, it's uh, absolutely. I mean, one of, the, one of the knock-ons from there though, 
Uh, he's, I mean, I know that um, Curry took a, a couple of line-out balls, but he's not been asked to do that in the past. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, when you get into the maelstrom and the, the very uh, heaviest parts of, of games when things are flying around, mm. you revert to type. And the, the line-out options are something you've got to be always very careful of because you need to retain those. I just wonder, in the end, whether it cuts down their options yeah. um, a bit more than they'd like to, irrespective of what it brings around the park. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's exactly right. You've got to get the balance right. And it's great having two guys who can fly around the field and scrap on the floor. But then, as you say, if, you, if you're struggling to line out, you've only got two. Well, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't count Billy for the opponent as too much for a line out option. Either. So you've only really got uh, the two second rows as, as genuine uh, line options. That's where you would miss a, a Mark Wilson or, or an out and out six um, if, if it's Laws or... Itoje slipping in there, whatever it is, you, do, you definitely do need that th- sort of third slash fourth yeah. choice uh, yeah. line option, certainly. Eddie Jones has already said that he's not going to pick his starting 15 <laughs> before he gets to uh, Japan. I, I, I've always thought that would be a mistake, but actually, the way in which they've improved time after time just being in camp shows mm. that they're doing something right. And and and, and I think uh, it doesn't matter now. Um, Jones, this is a point about the way that games go, you know, it's not necessarily if you have injuries between games because you can cope with them. It's in games mm-hmm. when your first choice goes down and your, yeah. your substitute from the bench goes down and then you're starting to say, to, well, go, who do we play there now? Yeah. He's, 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 he's had so many different combinations that have now started to look good and work that I'm, I'm struggling to see... Uh, barring an absolute disaster during a game, that he hasn't got fairly good cover for whatever is thrown at him. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost uh, the complete opposite to what happened with Stuart Lancaster's build-up. He, he yes. chopped and changed a lot and actually went into a World Cup with a squad that was very undercooked and, and he probably didn't know his first 15, let alone his first 22, uh, whatever it was back then. Yeah. Um, Eddie Jones appears to have gone about it a similar way, but with a, a different, completely different result. In, in as you say, he's he's had a lot of players come through the door and, and play. Some of them are still around. Some of them are being discarded as uh, you know either work works in progress or not good enough. Um, but here we are now, 25 days before the World Cup, and um, he has. And we've just been talking about the back row, but there's there's plenty of positions on the field where he's spot for choice, and you know, whether that's uh, crafty management and crafty coaching by Jones or just blind luck because the players uh, happen to be in form at the right time. It doesn't time. matter though, does it? Know. It doesn't no, matter which it, it is. It doesn't, you're right. <laughs> but um, yeah, here we are. Um, and he, he, like you say, he has, we have got a squad where every position bar probably nine, I think, is it, it, there's, there's a couple of players at least uh, everywhere who, who, who you'd be very, very happy to start um, in a test match. I mean, that's no disrespect to Willie Hines, but he's he's very inexperienced at, at this point and um, that, that sort of counts against him a touch. Uh, but what I would say, I guess Eddie Jones wouldn't be able to pick his first choice uh, 15 before the World Cup because I don't think Jack Noel will be fit. I don't think Henry yeah. Slade will be fit. I, I suspect yeah. that they would be, well, certainly Jack Noel would, would feature in a first 15 somewhere or other. Uh, Slade, I'd, I'd say, would be very, very close. Well, in 2018, when Ireland had their historic win over the All Blacks, uh, a lot of people in the rugby world, I was one of them, said that Ireland had the strongest squad they'd ever had. A lot of people in the rugby world, and I wasn't one of these, said that England were on the way down and Ireland were on the way up. It didn't look like that last Saturday at Twickenham, and Joe Schmidt, the Irish coach, said that Ireland were uh, behind England in their preparations. Why don't we speak to uh, Liam Toland, the uh, Irish Times and former Leinster and uh, Munster back row about this. Hello, Liam. How are you, Brian? 
I'm okay, mate. Um, George Schmidt said Ireland were behind England. They, they certainly looked like that. Um, the amount of work they have to do to catch up, can they do it in, 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 in the very, very short time now before everything kicks off? Well, I suppose in answering the question, Brian, I, I'm reminded of the, the prime principle in employing force or power in the pursuit of your team's objectives. And for anyone who's in Twickenham or for me watching it from lovely Ireland, uh, Ireland fails to become effective in what they wanted to do. And that's a real concern, particularly the mood that England are in. Um, I think leading up to the game itself, Brian, I think no one would have been overly ambitious around the result for Ireland in terms of Ireland winning because of the obvious fixtures that uh, the important ones that England played against Wales um, put them ahead of us. And I'm not sure about where we are in the cycle in terms of our pre-season training. So the Irish players individually looked tired, looked fatigued, and the unit skills was, was pretty appalling in lots of cases. And you're all, I'm talking to two hookers now, of course, today, but <laughs> I thought the Irish management of the line-out was, was very, very weak. And you could, you could link that to four or five tries, certainly, that were scored by England. Um, so there's things that we saw on Saturday that were very fixable. I think with the right people in charge and the right people running the line-out um, will make a huge benefit for whoever's throwing the ball in. That'll improve. Um, I think, though, that the great worry for me is when Ireland are in possession, that's when we're going to struggle against sides like England, which has happened two times in a row now, where England were able just to just to triple team the ball carrier and be, make the the breakdown become a, a real mess for the scrum half and subsequently for the for the back line. So when we're in possession, that's a worry. We don't have a, a subtle counter attack. We're uh, attacking very narrow, which is what Joe Smith built the great victories over New Zealand and other great teams. It's mm-hmm. it's a very efficient um, one out rocking system, but against players the power that England brought uh, on Saturday. Wow, there's a need for a rethink. Well, Liam, I mean, part of that uh, ascension was was based squarely on a very accurate, a very um, intelligent kicking game, not just for exits, you know, but in an attacking sense as well. Uh, it was the first time, actually, that I can remember for you know, several years where I couldn't actually understand what Ireland were trying to do when they did have the ball. It just seemed incoherent to me. You know, on the one hand, a bit of a keying strategy. On the one hand, a bit of a one-out. On the other hand, a bit of a, you know, lateral movement by the backs, which was done not really at pace and not with enough, uh, certainly not enough inertia and not enough accuracy. But, it, but, it, but overall, it just seemed confused to me. And I wonder what it felt like to you. Well, uh, like when, when we look at this, we can we can look at the who, what, where, how, and why. But I suppose what we're trying to find out today is the how and why. Why was yeah. Ross Byrne under so much pressure? Now, first of all, Ross Byrne is the fourth choice. And if you factor in, say, a Paddy Jackson, who has been exiled to the UK for all the reasons we're aware of, he might be the fifth choice out half. So I think it'd be unfair to overjudge his performance on Saturday. He's not the he's not a Johnny Sexton. He may become one, but he's certainly not one now. So he's not the type of guy to kind of grab the, the fixture by the scruff of the neck. So I think we need to temper our overall assessment of Ireland based on some of the players. Um, but the platform that Ireland, and I go back to the line-out, like it, I couldn't understand it. When, like I, when I was captain of Leinster, I used to be the line-out caller and Shane Byrne was the hooker, a test line, all that sort of stuff, because his needs and my needs were very different. I was thinking the team, or he was thinking of the hooker and his accuracy. But that has evolved to the modern-day line-out manager. How Ireland, with three line-out targets over 10 metres, couldn't source the ball against two world-class guys in the second row, but 
the Teje and Cruz are just two targets. Yet England managed to completely um, ham-fist Ireland's platform, which is a hugely important platform to Ireland's attacking. We're, we're a really good attacking team off lineouts, and we have scored tries against the best teams in the world from our lineout. That was completely nullified. And not only that, it. It, we lack the ability to soak up time and pressure through a lineup mall, which all the things have filtered from that. So I think the first thing that Ireland need to do is fix that and get the lineup manager, be it Toner or James Ryan, and fix that because England should not have got the amount of success they did, regardless of the world class second rows they have. That will improve things. The midfield, I felt there was no one prepared or able to, to kind of a go to player to. To, to help Ross Byrne out but in a leadership sense communication wise or indeed in action and someone like a Chris Farrell is just so big he's the type of player who might be able to do that or, or a Henshaw might be able to do that but certainly Bundy Aki wasn't able to do that so the other fact is that the Irish forwards when carrying one out again like CJ Stander carry the ball twice in anger really and he's our supposed go-to ball carrier he um he carried the first ball in 47 minutes and the second one in 68 minutes and gained no ground. So there's no one in the pack. Uh, one of your old stalwarts coached me for a while, Willie Anderson, and oh, yes. he, he used to do an awful lot of work around Conte. Do you remember him, Brian? You do? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I remember Willie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he did a huge amount of work with us in Leinster around continuity, um, targeting soft, soft shoulders, taking the contact in your terms, looking for an offload. And I thought what England presented, I know the back three were fantastic and Elliot Daly and all that, but the real bit that impressed me about England was so many English forwards were presenting, um, taking the ball in their terms, running onto the ball, offloading, and there was loads of examples of it. And Ireland just simply don't look to hunt for an offload. It's not part of the Ireland game. We haven't evolved like uh, England has over time, and we don't have the horses for courses either. So it's a real concern. I think the lineup will be fixed. I think the scrum shouldn't be a massive issue. I hope Keane Healy survives. Um, but the real concern for me is when we have possession, what are we doing? With it. And this is something that's been going on for 18 months. This is not just a knee-jerk reaction at the weekend. Um, there's been a huge call here in Ireland for uh, Joey Carberry to start, if not at 10, certainly at 15, to provide a, a second option that Elliot Daly is currently doing for England and others around the world. Um, and we seem to have not evolved whether Joe Smith has a master plan uh, remains to be seen. But my big, big worry is if we play a style of game that we've done against England the last two times against the South Africa, where Razzy Erasmus, as the head coach who knows Irish rugby inside out from his time in Munster, we're going to really struggle to win that corridor power. And if we do lose that corridor, then it goes back to your question, what's our game? And the only thing Ross Byrne could have done last weekend was kick the ball and that gets you a field position. But if you're losing lineouts and not competing, well, then you're not going to score tries. So there's a real worry, obviously. Uh, Liam, it's uh, George Shirley here, mate. Just sort of leading on from that 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 last sort of uh, bit of the conversation there about the squad. Um, you know, perhaps perhaps a year ago the Irish squad picked itself. Certainly, the, the, the first fifteen, first sort of twenty odd players picked themselves. Um, we, again, we're not we're not pushing the panic button too much here. We, we do realise obviously uh, different stages of development for the World Cup. Of that, but do you do you think the Irish have got a deep enough squad to to make some of these changes to the, the game plan that you're thinking of? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think we can go into the World Cup with a half-back pairing that we had on Saturday. Mm. I, I just, I think you need world-class half-backs to be playing at, 
world-class level. And it's a real worry about who that starting 10 might be. There's a question marks over Carberry and there's question marks over Sexton. If we're losing those two guys, you're then, you're then into a very, very young out half who hasn't proven himself at that level. That's mm-hmm. a concern and that impacts then our ability to change the game in many ways. But Joe Smith appears to be a guy that the more successful he has become, the more conservative he has been with his tactics. When he was in Leinster, I know he had Nasiwa and these swashbucklers playing for Leinster, but they also played a really, really brilliant brand of rugby, attacking game, counter-attacking game. That seems to be lost. So I don't know in terms of Ireland's evolution, are they ready for an offloading game because there's no evidence of it? Mm. Are they ready for a counter-attacking game because there's no... There was a hint of it, to be fair, for Car- um, for Carney on uh, the first half uh, in Twickenham, but there isn't part of of the DNA of this Irish team. Mm. So those two aspects aren't happening. And when you see how England now have been able to, I suppose negate all of Ireland's game plan whilst also developing a power play and a counter-attack. It's really, really worrying. I'm not so sure we're going to be able to evolve quickly enough mm. to be able to avoid, if we play South Africa in the quarterfinals, to have a, a game that avoids contact and creates space for others. I'm not so sure we'll get there in time. Mm, interesting. Uh, Liam, you, the two games now, um, Wales are coming up. Now, they've got a balance. They need to win and not go into a World Cup with the depressing record of, you know, three out of four, the win being against Italy. But you've also got to look at the performance. How do you... Difficult for me from this side, what what from your side is are the priorities and what's the mix between those two? Well, I think that the performance on Saturday is going to be really difficult uh, for a number of reasons. One, on the back of Twickenham, but two, it's, it's Warren Gatland's last home game, if memory serves. So it's yeah. a big, big, a big, big occasion for, for the Welsh and for Warren Gatland. So it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be more difficult. I think there's going to be a massive improvement. Get the lineup management right. That's a huge thing. I would be slow to drop. I don't know about you guys, but I'd be slow to drop Rory Best at this stage, but his his position is certainly in doubt. But the problem for Irish rugby is the three the three to inherit the crown, I think Niall Scallon is is certainly the strongest of the three as an overall game, but no one is really really torched. There was no twenty year old or twenty one year old just torching mm-hmm. his way and just bullying his way into that position, um, which we've experienced over the last say twenty years. So I think there'll be some subtle team selection. I think James Ryan is hugely important, along with Devon Toner, will make a massive difference. The back row, though, is going to be really interesting because on form, for me, Reese Ruddock, uh, Jack Conan, the number eight for Leinster, and possibly um, Josh van der Fleer are the, are the form back row. So there's going to have to be some changes. Um, CJ Stander and Peter O'Mahony didn't offer enough uh, last week. So I think one or two changes, certainly a change of 12, I think will make a big difference depending on... Um, depending on fitness and that. But we have a real problem at 10. Who's going to actually be in control of this fixture uh, on Saturday? So it's going to be a real, real challenge. Beyond that, I don't know, do they need to change a whole lot? But again, if you fix that line out, I think enormous positive things happen. Mm -hmm. But to finally say that Wales beat Ireland to win the Grand Slam in Cardiff a few, well, a couple of weeks back, really, a few months back, they didn't have to play any rugby at all to win that game. They simply stopped Ireland from playing. And that, for me, is the key. Can Ireland, with the ball in hand, actually cause problems for the opposition? And we've seen in the Six Nations that England certainly, Wales certainly, and others were able to simply stop them from play. So that's the real big concern for me for this Saturday and for the weeks ahead. 
Well, Liam, we will we'll find out. Uh, first time we've spoken to you on the uh, Full Contact podcast, and I'd love to do so again. I thought uh, that was a very insightful, intelligent contribution. Thank you very much. <laughs> a rare accusation on my behalf. Thank you so much. Take <laughs> care, guys. Take care, mate. <laughs> the, the couple of points you brought up, one about Rory Best. Now, look, um, uh, this is not personal. I don't, I don't know Rory Best. I think he's been an absolutely fantastic servant. He's been a very, very, very good player. I just get a feeling, you know, Sometimes, and you can't prove this by fitness scores, but sometimes players are just starting on the slide. And it seems to me, you know, you can you can blame timings and whatever, but simply on Saturday, some of the throws were just not there. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I agree totally with what Liam said in, in terms of um, there's no one really pushing Rory Best uh, as, as first choice hooker for Ireland. You know, you've got Sean Cronin, um, the Leinster hooker, uh, probably around the field, the best of the lot, I think. He's, he's a smaller bloke, but he, he's very dynamic, but hasn't really nailed down his position. Uh, Niall Scannell, the, the Munster lad that uh, Liam mentioned, again, his throwing is no more secure than, than Rory Best or anyone else's. So that, that's, that's an issue for him. And then Rob Herring, who's um, got about seven caps and hasn't played against anyone of, of note, uh, is just very inexperienced. So there, there's a real... I mean, he, he, we were talking about the fly-off uh, issues. There's certainly a, an issue at hooker for Ireland. And mm. I think Rory, Rory Best has been a fantastic player, but unfortunately, time takes its toll. He's played 120, 130 tests, whatever it is, 116. <laughs> test whatever it is mm. uh, and that's a lot of a lot of miles on the clock um and yeah you know, no one's getting any younger uh, it unfortunately that, that sort of comes to us all um i'm not saying that it was his fault entirely there, there clearly was an issue with the line out in terms of the calling and uh, and the execution of the the lifts of the jumps but uh, yeah as you said some of the throws looked a bit wobbly and some of that might be a bit of a confusion other other bits might just be mm. uh, a sort of breakdown of his technique but yeah i just don't, I, don't, I just don't think i really have that's part of my question there do they have the depth to to change the game i think in certain positions they're very very light yeah well, Scotland, they avenged their defeat in Nice last week when they were absolutely woeful. <laughs> there was a narrow win over France at Murrayfield. But, that's, I mean, look, that is a very necessary one, a good win. I always thought that Scotland would take time to try and re-gather uh, their strengths, given they'd had about 15 players yeah. out. Yeah. So it's nearly half a squad who've got to be coming back in. And even if they are, which they are, very good players, you know, familiarity and so on, it's a, it's a sort of thing... I think you know you could cope with this if it's a year out. It's been it's going to be very difficult for them, you know, to get it absolutely right as to where they wanted to be with that. And I can I can see them, you know, in a one-off game. I can see them, you know, uh, beating nearly anybody. But I just can't see over the course of a a tournament, uh, given the lack of preparation they've had with them all together, yeah. you know, being able to sustain it for a, a, a proper challenge. Yeah, and, and as always with Scotland, the, the big sort of question is around. Finn Russell at fly off and his relationship yeah. with Gregor Townsend and how is Scotland going to play? Are they going to play the pragmatic uh, uh, style of rugby that generally wins World Cup or are they going to uh, let Finn Russell <laughs> loosen? And, well, I don't know. And... If you've got Finn Russell, you've got to let him play. I don't, I don't see yeah, the point. absolutely. But, I mean, my point, and I've made this point many times, um, actually regarding Danny Cipriani, is you don't win a World Cup with a maverick uh, fly half. You have to have a guy who's solid and plays to a game plan. Yes, a little bit of magic here and there. Someone like a Dan Carter, obviously, he was a bit of a freak of a player in, in, in the history of the game. But fundamentally, he was a very, very good, effective, game-controlling fly half. 
yes. and then had a, had a, had a uh, X Factor coming out there, Wazoo, uh, on top of that. But Johnny Wilkinson, Stransky, Mike Liner, you know, these guys, they, they all had flashes, but fundamentally they were solid players who knew how to play the game. And I, th mm -hmm. I just think uh, Finn Russell will ne would never win the World Cup for, for anyone, let alone um, uh, Scotland. You know, Carlos Spencer didn't do it for, couldn't do it for uh, New Zealand. I'm not sure anyone mm -hmm. can do it. Japan, um, I know a, a lot of uh, work has been done uh, with Japan to try and make sure that the host nation don't fall down. And indeed, um, they probably had the result, I think, of any World Cup against South Africa. Yeah. If you were uh, them, um, what would you now be thinking about Ireland and Scotland? Well, there's certainly blood in the water, isn't there, with Ireland? Um, you know, six months ago, uh, the Japanese would have thought, oh, we've got no chance, Ireland are almost number one in the world. They've just beaten the All Blacks twice in a year and um, this this, you know, this is going to be a tough ask for us. But in the last sort of two weeks, they've seen them just scrape past Italy and get heavily thumped by, by England. Uh, and Scotland have been uh, less than impressive in, in the two games against France. So um, yeah, the Japanese, it'll be a massive massive tournament for them. Um, you know, they showed a huge amount of pride and uh, no shortage of skill and, and uh, endeavour as well, it has to be said, in, in, in 2015 and came away with, as you said, probably one of the biggest upsets in the history the uh, the rugby world cup so they'll be and of there. course they're at home as well exactly. now that look that doesn't always go well be, yeah. it didn't didn't do for england the pressure no. really told no but i think they'll be inspired this time yeah well they're not under pressure either no one's expecting to win it uh, mm -hmm. whereas england perhaps there was an expectation that oh yeah it's home we must get to the final the japanese will be out there they're they'll they've got nothing to lose they've got everything to gain they'll have the huge amount of support the japanese love their sport any sport even even sort of a minority sport like rugby union they'll they'll get behind it because the, the Japanese are playing on, on the on the world stage, uh, and that, yeah, the, the games that they play, particularly those those big ones there against them. Um Ireland and Scotland, the crowds will be bumping, but absolutely heaving, uh, and it'll be a big, uh, big ask for Scotland and Ireland to to really get on top of the Japanese. World rugby get a lot of stick. Um, I would defend them uh, heavily in this area, in terms of governance. They're going to have a third of uh, their positions filled uh, by females, as far outweighs any of the other major sporting federations, and they've now gone some way to what they say is adopting a generally neutral naming for tournaments. The Women's Rugby World Cup from now on is just the Rugby World Cup, and they claim it's the ultimate statement in equality. But is that a wise idea? What will the knock-on effect be commercially? What will it say about um, the different identities? Why don't we speak to someone who knows uh, what they're talking about rather than me? It's Tim Crow, the sports marketing expert, who joins us now. Tim, hello. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, it's certainly a bold move. Is it the right one? How? What sort of impact will it have? First of all, um, on the game rather than any other aspects. Yeah, on the game. I mean, I think you know, there's 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 a competition sort of going on here at the moment between different sports, different people within sports, different governing bodies to outbehave each other. Actually, which is a good thing. Um, I mean, I think in 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 the UK, you can certainly trace it back to London 2012 and the fact that so many of um, the medals that were won by GB were won by women. The poster person of the games was Jess Ennis Hill, and and sort of the people who really picked up the button on that were BBC, Sky, and BT, who've been in a, a competition on this for a while. And this is very much part of it. Of course, it's spread. It is spreading worldwide now. So 
um, it, it's it's a good thing in this, and 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 but it is very much about governing bodies sort of jockeying with each other to to, to raise standards and to be seen as standard bearers. Uh, do you think it sets a precedent for other sports? I suppose it depends whether it's successful, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I've seen you know I saw some comments about people saying they'd be confused, which I did. Uh, people would be confused, which I did find a bit puzzling because. <laughs> um, call me old-fashioned, but I mean, you know, if it's in 2021, it's the women's. If it's in 23, it's the men's, and so on. I think most people should be able to get their hands around that. A lot does it, I think, depend on on how they market it, how they brand it, whether it keeps its identity. But uh, in respect of um, how it will actually play out, I mean, I, I think the more importantly, commercially, is um you know the 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 effect that the tv companies have when it comes to marketing it because they are the biggest marketers of of any event um so what they do with it i think we're very interesting and how they react and, and in sponsorship terms i actually think it's f- what what road rugby have done which is far more significant is they've actually split the rights between the men's and women's now so you can buy those separately oh. um which you weren't able to do previously and i think that's that's uh, certainly uh going to be one to watch because arguably that's far more risky than um than than what they've done with the actual name of the tournament have you a gut feeling as to how it will go because i know when we've spoken in the past hmm. uh, you've made the point very forcefully that um the sponsorship area uh, for women has companies queuing up to put money into it if the proposition is right yes yes um, well, I think that, um, like like all these things, you, you, we're only going to find out until after the event, because obviously there are a lot of factors in this in terms of you know how it's priced um, and what the what the package is and so on. I, I think that certainly an awful lot, for example, of the current sponsors of the men's edition of the game um, will, I would suspect, sign up to sponsor the women's edition because you wouldn't, for example, if you were a DHL, uh, be that happy if um, FedEx or UPS came in and sponsored um, the women's oh, yeah. tournament, which is, of course, now known as Rugby World Cup rather than mm-hmm. Women's Rugby World Cup. Um, so in that respect, actually, what, what, um, what World Rugby have done is quite a smart move, um, and I would expect that to be quite competitive, that area. But only time will tell, really. I suppose you've also got to understand with brands, um, say, for example, you work with BMW, I know very heavily, if you think that females don't have a decision in who buys BMWs, then uh, you haven't really done your research, have you? So we want to have both <laughs> both options covered. Well, um, uh, the, the sort of the stat that um, is um, really out there at the moment, uh, and I, I forget which um, management consultancy came up with it, but um, I, I read the report is very interesting that women are actually heavily involved, uh, and if if not the main decision maker, certainly equal decision maker, in eighty five percent of all purchasing decisions. So right. there you go. Well, there you are. Um, Tim, just a final uh, a final one. In terms of uh, women's rugby going forward, um, do you think um, the adoption of the, the gender-neutral thing is, is, is one thing that would come or should go down to domestic levels and all that sort of thing, or, or should we just wait and see? 
I think um, uh, it's a wait and see on this actually, because I think you know when you've got a world tournament with the sort of coverage that it gets, I think you've got the luxury of being able to make decisions um, like this that, that, that perhaps people in other areas can't do, where they're they're striving to create an identity and frankly trying to tap into the market for for women's sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's a wait and see one, and I would certainly advise anybody at, at sort of lower levels to retain their identity for the time being. But I think over time we are going to see gender neutrality creep in throughout the game, and I think that's probably a good thing. Tim, great to speak to you as always. Thank you very much. All the best. Full contact in association with Mitsubishi Motors. Everyone's ambitions are different. You can climb to the top, or you could take on uphill battles of a different kind. You can explore for hundreds of miles, or you could begin a bigger journey. You can make time fly, or you could make it stand still. The Mitsubishi SUV range. Drive your ambition. Very pleased to say we are joined by Sarah Hunter today, courtesy of Mitsubishi Motors, the proud performance partner of England Rugby. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Brian. Um, you're back in the camp after the summer and the World Super Series. Um, the women's game is you know, going rapidly apace, as is uh, not only the professional, the amateur side. It wasn't like that when you were a child, was it? How did you get involved early on? No, it certainly wasn't. Um, I... I was fortunate enough to, to be in the right place at the right time and uh, the primary school I played in had got um, a guest community rugby league coaching um, and uh, it, they had to deliver to the class as a whole both boys and girls who weren't allowed just to do boys so, um, so yeah from the age of nine I, I picked up and um, started with rugby league before I moved across to, to union at the base Well you've got a, an up and coming season not a not a World Cup year. What are your aims uh, for this season? Hello? Hi. Hi, did you hear the question? Sorry. You might no, sorry. No, sorry, yeah. I didn't. Okay, I'll, I'll repeat it. Um, it's uh, two years' time, 2021, till the New Zealand uh, host the uh, World Cup. But what are your aims for this season? Yeah, so I think we, we've literally, today's the first day back into to our pre-season after our, our extended break from the summer tour. So um, I think for me personally, it's about um, playing well for, for my club, Loughborough Lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go into um, we go into Autumn International. So um, it's very much about performance to get selected for, for those. And um, and then we're obviously on a, a two-year two ca- countdown. So we then go into Six Nations and then, um, it'll be into to summer tour um, mentality. So the season, it comes up quickly and then you, you're through it before you know it. But I think um, as we get closer to 2021, it, it starts to become very much about performance um, mm-hmm. as a player. So you, you, the England team starting to squads being narrowed down in terms of thoughts for for the World Cup and it's really important for myself to ensure that I stay at the top of my game to maintain um, a spot in that in that squad and then perform either for 
for my club or, or for country. Well, you've already won um, the World Cup in 2014. You're a runner-up in 2017. I presume you'd like another crack at Dean 21. But what keeps you motivated when you've achieved so much, if not all, that you could do already? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's, it's that, that drive to, to become a better player. Um, after 2014, if you sort of said, oh, how much you're going to improve over the, the next four or five years, I, I don't think um, I would have... I would have understood how um, I could do that. But I think as I've become an uh, older player and wiser, I've, I've really started to, to understand that actually you can you can um, become better. The game has changed. So um, as a player, I need to adapt to that. But um, to get to, to 2021 um, and hopefully uh, win another World Cup would be, be absolutely amazing. But my, my driver is that I can I can be better than I was mm-hmm. last season. Um, and by 2021, I, I'd hope to be a better player than I, I am now. Um, my, my game is certainly not the finished article, that's for sure. And I, our coaches are really good at continuing to, to keep challenging me as a player and, and how I can get better and how I can develop my overall game. We've just been speaking to Tim Crow, the sponsorship expert, about the decision of World Rugby to adopt a gender-neutral naming for the World uh, Rugby World Cup. So it's not going to be the Women's Rugby World Cup anymore, just the Rugby World Cup. Um, on the one hand, it's a sign that the women's game is becoming more mainstream, but other people have expressed concerns about identity. What, what do you make of the decision? Yeah, I think it, it's brilliant from um, World Rugby to, to recognise um, more gender equality across the, the sport. And rugby is rugby, whether you play it, if you're a male or you're a female. Um, and I think um, I think only time will tell about as the promotion starts to come out for 2021 and we, we build towards that and, and during it about how clear it is that it's the female game that is playing and I, I do think maybe currently still at this time in terms of to generate interest and and um, grow momentum of that then do, you still, do we still need to be the, the women's game the other argument is should they have gone it's the men's rugby world cup 2019 and that still that still defines the two but mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't have any um gender inequality because they're both they've both been defined by by their by their gender mm-hmm. um the women's um football world cup significant um that was um and how much support they got and how many how much interest and how big that that was so i don't know whether it's necessarily we need to remove um, the titles, maybe we just need to make it equal in mm-hmm. in both areas. Um, what we don't want people doing is, oh, there's a Rugby World Cup in 2021, and then going, oh, it's the Women's World Cup, and then them being, oh, well, I thought it was the men's. So it starts to, doesn't lose um, clarity on it, and I think only only time will tell with that as we move yeah. closer. Well, uh, you, you mentioned the issue of uh, gender and one of you, and uh, I'd like to just raise the subject because several other people you know well, uh, female players, have raised concerns about the case of Kelly Morgan, who was born Nicholas Morgan, who represented um, East Wales as a teenager and then um, wanted to identify as a female, has been taking um, oestrogen to lower her uh, testosterone levels for about 18 months and he's playing for Porth 
Harlequin ladies. Now, a lot of people have weighed in. If Daniel uh, Waterman was saying she's concerned about this for the safety issue um, because the imbalance uh, even after taking the oestrogen. Um, <laughs> difficult uh, area is this, uh, fraught with um, lots of, of things. Uh, what's your view on, on trans, trans people playing rugby? What's your view? Um, I think there probably needs to be a whole research done on, on the case. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we've got enough information at the minute to be able to, to make a, uh, a statement on whether it should be okay. I think what rugby is fantastic for us, it's that it's a sport for all, um, including um, transgender people, where they fit within the game and how mm-hmm. they fit in, I think needs to be looked at um, on, a, on a bigger scale because obviously um, World Rugby, RFU, uh, from what like I can speak of, is put player welfare at the forefront of everything now. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that has to be maintained um, to ensure that the game is safe uh, for everyone involved, whether that's female, male, transgender, it has to it has to be able to, to happen. Um, and I just don't think we, we have enough information to, to be able to make mm-hmm. that call um, at the minute. But I think as um, people feel more comfortable in society going from one gender to the other, um, I think there has to be a place for them to be able to, to, to play sport. But how mm-hmm. that looks as a, as a whole, again, is relatively unknown at the minute. Um, mm which I think we want to live in a world where everyone's accepted and equal and that's really important. So I think we need to we need to sort of probably start to prioritise some of the, mm-hmm. the differences we may not have come across in the past. Sarah, can I just say thank you for coming on the podcast? Look, great. Have, got, have a good season. I'm sure thank you will. Make, make sure your standards keep going up, which I'm sure they will. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, George, um, we've both been in World Cups, uh, preparations, uh, finals, actually. We both had, unfortunately, the same fate. Um, but, you know, I remember watching the 36-0 defeat by South Africa in the pool stages, and I just didn't see any hope. Uh, you know, I'm a miserable git anyway, but um, but I just couldn't see one. What, what, what was the feeling in the camp at that point? <sighs> Well, we genuinely couldn't have got any lower. Um, we, we were, and people tend to forget this because we got to the final in the end. We were, we were one of the worst England teams uh, in, in history leading up to that World Cup. We'd, um, we'd lost heavily in Australia in 06, in the summer in 06. Uh, two tests over there, where, where I remember debut actually. Came back for the Autumn Internationals, shipped 40 points to the All Blacks, lost to Argentina, um, and then beat South Africa narrowly and then lost to them the week after. So, and then the Six Nations following that, after we'd, um, uh, Andy Robinson had got the sack after the autumn, Brian Ashton came in in the Six Nations. We we beat uh, Scotland and Italy at home, uh, lost fairly heavily away in, in at Croke Park in Dublin and uh, lost away in Cardiff. Uh, and really, we went into the World Cup with absolutely zero form. 
um, and certainly very, very low confidence. First game against the USA, we, we won by about 10 points. Uh, Phil Vickery got banned for, um, I think it was a trip tackle or something like that. He got, he got uh, cited and banned for the next week. And then we run out against the uh, the, the South Africans and uh, and get, uh, get soundly thrashed 36-0. And then we were lucky to get nil on the day. So we, I don't think we could have been any lower. And there were some guys in that uh, changing room who had been in the 2003 World Cup uh, winning team. I, I guess they would have uh, wondered what they what they let themselves in for. Johnny and Jason Robinson, Martin Corey was involved as well with Delalio. And it, it, it just, I, I, I just don't think uh, we could have got any lower. Um, properly, properly scraping the, the bottom of, uh, of so the. So what, what was it, what was what was the approach from that point on? Was it was it say? Well, we can't get any. We, 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 we've got to get better. Or was it oh, bloody minded? I said, look, we've reached like, like a like an addict. We've reached rock bottom now, and we're determined to do whatever it takes. Yeah, it, to it, get better. It was it was sheer bloody mindedness and uh, mindedness even. Um, and a group of five five players, five senior players: uh, Johnny, uh, Ollie Barkley, actually, Mike Corey, uh, Lawrence. They sort of. Took it upon themselves to to sort of restructure the game plan. Mike Cat as well. Mike Cat uh, restructure the game plan effectively and and play to our strengths because I think for for all Brian Ashton's um, uh, vision and ability as a coach and he, and he was a very very good coach, a fantastic coach. Uh, I just think he had a team in front of him that couldn't do any of the things he really wanted them to do as players right. uh, and the team. Uh, but he was he was, he was uh, resolute and. Uh, typically stubborn in his belief that we'll do it anyway uh, and that culminated in, in a heavy loss to South Africa but I think the players then said look you know this is no good we've got to play to our strengths we're not an expansive team we're not we're not uh, the Harlem Globetrotters or anything like that we can't we can't expect all our players to play what's in front of them because we're just not quite frankly up to it uh, but what we can do is we can scrum we can maul we can tackle we can kick and chase and put other teams under pressure uh, and that's effectively what we did and and um, in all credit to Brian he, he sort of stepped back a little bit and allowed that to happen and that's a mm-hmm. that's a pretty big uh, action as a coach in, in, yeah. in, in terms of handing out this is again this is you know, 12 years ago now the, the player power then was was were very much a, a thing of the future the coaches were the coach and that's what happened but fair play to him, he, he stepped back and let let uh, let us do do what we wanted to do in, in effect. Well, of course, that led him to one of the best weekends of World Cup action I could ever remember, actually, because I think you were, de- were you down in Marseille when you beat yep. uh, Australia, <laughs> yep. and that's a hell of a ground, isn't it? And then, beautiful. <laughs> of course, everyone is uh, trying to sober up to go home and. I remember a lot of my mates who'd gone down to that said they just stayed in the bars because when France beat New Zealand, they said the drinks just flowed yeah. from anywhere for free. On Crabla, I think you call yeah. it. Yeah, well, that 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 quarterfinal win was, um, and, and, and guys who were involved in 2003 will tell you that actually almost meant more to them in 2007 because how far we'd slipped down and how much of an underdog we are. The Aussies were in the papers saying, oh, you know, England, they've got no chance. We're going we're gonna to wipe the floor with you. Lottie Takiri in, in particular uh, said he guaranteed a victory pretty much. And um, yeah. Never a, never a wise thing, that, is <laughs> yeah. it? Never. Well, it's, yeah, the, Aussie, the Aussies like a bit of that sort of mind game stuff, don't they? And uh, it, every now and then it does backfire on you. And yeah, we... we we knew that they were vulnerable. They played in a, a relatively easy pool. I think they won all their games, not conceded any points or certainly not any tries. Um, and, and but they'd never been tested. They hadn't been tested in in those group games at all. So we knew that if we put them under pressure again, if we kick and chase and tackle and harry them and put them under pressure, the scrum was going to be good. Going to be going to be a big battleground, which we we won quite easily. Uh, we knew we could win the game, and um, it just came down to sort of last sort of five ten minutes. Johnny sneaked us ahead after we got a penalty from the scrum, and then Sterling. Mortlock had a 
had a penalty from about 45, maybe even on just inside our half, um, to win it effectively. And, and uh, as he as he stepped up, the the Mistral Mistral came in from the sea, uh, <laughs> as it does in Marseille, and just blew the ball slightly to the left of the post, and and we won. And the, the great thing was we, we were in we were in the old port in Marseille, and Marseille's just a, a fantastic. I mean, not not so nice inside the town itself, but certainly around the the old port, it's just oh, beautiful. Yes. Some lovely restaurants and bars there, and we were mix, we were mixing with all sorts of fans from all over the world who just come there, um, and we found these bars, and we were in a same in a, a bar with primarily French in there. There were obviously a few of the English knocking around on that. And we were celebrating the French game, celebrating, and then the, the final whistle went and everyone was sort of cheering and hugging. Then we realised, actually, we've <laughs> got to play these guys next week. So yeah. the atmosphere turned a bit more hostile fairly quickly. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a cracking night. A few of the lads um, ended up on uh, yachts and stuff like that. And uh, the, the whole the whole of the old port was just absolutely buzzing. It was a cracking, cracking evening. Well, I remember as soon as the uh, weather Change for the semi-final. I said France will not win this. They they're not good in the wet, and indeed that turned out to be the case. So you get through South Africa again, mm. having lost thirty-six nil to them. What's the psychological uh, approach to that one? Well, do you know what? And it sounds um, it sounds a bit flippant, a bit churlish, but actually I don't think that. 36 nil really affected us because after that game I think a lot of us had almost decided there's no we're going to miss out on the knockout stages here uh, we'll just go out there as we said and we'll, we'll, we'll play what we can we'll give it a crack we end up in quarterfinal we end up in the semi-final so we end up in the final so actually we probably didn't feel like we should have been there uh, so again there was a little bit of a case of having no pressure the South mm-hmm. Africans were favourites so clear favourites going into the tournament they'd spent four years between uh, Australia in 2003 and France in 2007 building a team specifically to win the World Cup they'd had, uh, they had about 900 caps worth of experience in the team um, and they were heavy favourites before the tournament heavy favourites during it and obviously going into that game so we you know, we, 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 we approached it the same way we would approach um, the, the sort of the, the Tonga game the Samoa game and the two knockout games we're just going to go out there we'll do our bit you know, we'll, we'll give it everything we've got and we'll see where we end up um, and then, again that sounds a bit easy it sounds a bit flippant it sounds uh, a bit blasé but that's Generally, the sort of mental mental state we're in, we, we just you know, we've got nothing to lose. We're we're here. Does it? Did we deserve to be here? Probably not, but we are. So let's go out there and uh, and, and see what can see what can happen. What sort of just finally, George, before we sign off, what sort of mood do you think England and their camp should be in at the moment? Very positive, very positive, and, and they've 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 earned that as well. They've they've been through some. Very, very uh, high ups in in terms of winning Grand Slams and beating Australia three 0 in Australia and and those sort of games, uh, and they've been through, through some pretty low lows uh, over the last two Six Nations, losing games that they shouldn't have lost and drawing this. I mean, there's something like the Scotland game that's probably quite a big psychological blow for for a team to lose a thirty five nil lead at half time and, and just end up drawing a game. So they've they've had some real <laughs> a cliche, the real roller coaster ride over the last three or four years, but they're in a place now they've. Again, as we said before, is it it luck or judgment or a little bit of both? They're in a place now where they're really well set to go into a World Cup uh, confident. Um, I'm not saying they'll they'll, they'll win it. I'm not saying there's no guarantees in anything at all. But I don't think they could be in a better position right now with the World Cup uh, less than a month away. Uh, And they've worked hard to get there. They've they've gone through all those ups and downs. They've worked hard, clearly worked hard, very worked hard, worked very hard in this pre-World Cup camp they look fit they look strong they look fast they look cohesive um, so I think they should be absolutely buzzing and probably um, they could do without this game against Italy to be honest I just want to get on with the World Cup and get out there for that first game 
Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. Thank you to my co-host, George Shooter, and indeed to all, to all our guests. Please do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode every Monday during the World Cup and write a review whilst you're there too. But for now, it's goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>